I'm really happy that so many of you turned up. The next times we will be in a bigger room, so it's a bit crowded here. So, but so we have eight evenings. Uh, that's uh, that's wonderful to have some continuation. <coughs> and I just thought while I was sitting here, I tried to remember when I came to Malmo the first time, and that must have been in 2008. So that's uh, like 10 years, and uh, more than 10 years. And uh, some of the people who are here tonight, they, they were there. And um, so that's quite something precious to have uh, this stable spiritual relationships uh, with people. It's very, very important in our spiritual, on our spiritual path something we can be happy about. And I'm also happy that there's some new faces. Uh, people I have not met before, so you are very welcome also. In a way, this, uh, this course now, uh, the Vipassana course, is a continuation of the Shamatha course I gave last year which was a continuation of the 10 years of teaching before. Um, but yeah, don't worry. Uh, I will repeat the most important things. And But if you have some spare time the next few months uh, while we go through this journey, you could also listen to the teachings uh, I gave last year. Shamatha course. So I sent you the material. If you didn't get it, uh, then you are not on the email list yet. But um, because there's some people signed up the last four or five days. But if you don't get an email um, until Sunday, then let me know because that would mean that you're not on the list. It could be that I've missed someone. I will send out material and I will send out <laughs> the links to the recordings, so you can uh, listen to the recordings after, or if you miss the session, you can you can catch up. So, as always, we start with the meditation, and then we will have a break around eight, so you can have a coffee or something. And I'm not sure if there will be a lot of time for questions today, but uh, in the other evenings there will be always in the second half time for discussions and questions, which is an important part of our relationship. So now this first meditation, it will be always uh, the same kind of um, journey, which is in the Tibetan tradition, when you sit down for your meditation practice, you always have some kind of preparation, preliminary practices you do. I call that the entry protocol. So it's not like in the Tibetan tradition, you're not sitting down, okay, so now I watch the breath. But it's more like, you know, kind of you, you do things which uh, help you to settle, which help you to inspire you, which lift a bit your spirit and uh, you, uh, so, and part of this entry protocol uh, I will uh, guide you now, but it's actually completely up to you. you know, so we all have different spiritual backgrounds, so it's not that I say, oh, this is how you should do it. It's just like uh, an, an offering for you, and then you can check, uh, is that helpful for me? Does that fit? Does that make sense? So if you have uh, some 
you know, some prayers you do anyway for your daily practice or maybe you do the Shenrezig practice or the Vachasattva practice. So this could be part of your entry protocol before we then go into the Vipassana part, Vipassana part of, of the meditation. So this now, this guided meditation will have three parts. The first one is settling down, checking in. Yeah, so settling down and checking in is yeah, just you know, making contact with where you are, what is happening, how, how am I, uh, what do I bring into this moment. Yeah. The second part is uh, uh, a practice from the Tibetan tradition, which, are, which, is, which I call the mental bonding process. So in the mental bonding process, we call upon the presence of someone you see as a mentor, someone you find inspiring, someone, someone, <coughs> someone who is like um, adding uh, to the uh, adding to you. Yeah? So someone you would like to you know aspects of this person you wa- would like to internalize and make your own. So in the Buddhist tradition, we would uh, maybe call upon the Buddha or another Dalai Lama or Kamapa or Shenrezig. But again, that's completely up to you. So you can also call upon Jesus or uh, Bob Marley. Uh, It's like, uh, so the the more important thing is that it means something to you and that it lifts your spirit, that it lifts your heart. Could be also a grandmother or a grandfather if you feel like, uh, you know, more, you know, that it is sort of sh- should be a person you have actually met. <coughs> so when we do that, we are aware that when we call upon a mentor, that we are working with a projection so what we are actually connecting with is an aspect of ourselves. It's like in dreams. Yeah? So every every person in in your in your dreams can be seen and are often seen in dream work as uh, symbols of aspects of your own psyche, of your own preconscious mind. So similar here, when we call upon the Dalai Lama. It's not like, oh, Dalai Lama saved me, then, and, you know, and you are in India. <coughs> uh, the Dalai Lama is in India. No, it's, so the Dalai Lama for you is an, a symbol uh, which is connecting you with the Dalai Lama inside, yeah? with the compassion inside, uh, with the wisdom inside. So, for some of you, uh, if you haven't done this kind of practices, you might find out that this is useless for me. It's too, too new agey, uh, superstitious, religious bullshit, uh, and that's fine, because that's an insight. Uh, so then you found out that ah, no, this kind of stuff. It's just what the heck. Yeah. So, but that's a good information because um, then you know, oh, so what else can I do to lift my spirit, to connect with what is meaningful in my life? So what else can I do? So that's the mental bonding process. Traditionally, it's called guru yoga, but uh, the word guru is a bit difficult, like, Sometimes I have lost 30% of the audience just when I, use <laughs> when I use the word guru. So that's why I say mentor bonding process. It sounds a bit more... <laughs> so that's the sec... And we will do that every, every day, every time we meet. <coughs> so, this, so you can play with it a bit. And if not, do something else in that time. And then the third is, uh, the third aspect is uh, a bit of a reflection, a bit of a connection with your intention. 
So your longing. So why are you he why are you here? And then from there we can even go a bit deeper. Maybe there's maybe there's like a kind of modest reason he for to be here. Like for example, you want to feel a little better in your life and you get some tools to work with anxiety. That could be uh, it could be a reason to be here, and uh, and that's wonderful. But it's quite modest. There's there's more into it, into this yeah. than just feeling a little better. Uh, so I will also kind of push uh, a bit uh, into a kind of altruistic intention or a deeper intention. You know, what 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 do you want to do with your life? I mean, what 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 is it? What you want to use this precious day for this precious moment. So, what is it? What is the compass in your life? So, where do you want to, in which direction do you want to go in your life? And is that a safe direction, the one you're taking right now? So, in this intention, this is a very important theme within meditation practice. Yeah, I will say a bit more about that while we go along. To, uh, to check your intention and to remind yourself of your intention. In other words, to remind yourself what is really important in my life, knowing that I'm going to die soon. What is really important? Yeah. And what, help, what, what is it what is holding me back? How 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 courageous and how, how authentic am I in the way I live my life? So, and the, because you know what you know what we are doing in this course is goes far beyond any kind of well-being mindfulness, and it is risky. So. Genuine meditation is risky. Yeah. So, and for in order to do this journey, this kind of dangerous journey, you need to have a strong intention and knowing why why are you doing it. What are you aiming for? So then you also, then you are willing to also carry the luggage and you know have burning feet and get wet in the rain. In all guided meditation, also in this one, I'm not expecting you to do what I say. So it's more about your you. It's of course it's good if you have some openness and some trust, kind of that you, kind of that I can be a, your guide a little. Yeah. So that you at least try. <laughs> That's, uh, but uh, what is more interesting than trying to do what I say is what happens for you in the instructions when I come up with images, when I come up with questions, what is happening for you? <coughs> and as I said, if what is happening for you, what a bullshit, then that's just what is happening for you. It does not mean that you do something wrong. It, it, it's, it's, this is what is happening, and it's worth to be seen, and it's worth to be curious about. What is this? Why do I think this is bullshit? And how does it feel to think this is bullshit? Then if you find something in my instructions which you find uplifting or heartwarming or then you take that and you put it into your own entry protocol for your own practice and you can be very creative with this okay so let's take 
10 minutes or so to um, settle and connecting with the mentor. <coughs> so first is that you adjust your posture, so you sit comfortable, comfortably. If you like, you can close your eyes. That might be initially a bit easier. And you notice what happens when you start to pay more attention to your inner life, to your body. to the inner weather. So what do you bring with you into this moment? And nothing is excluded, so it's not about calming down or feeling different. So it's a welcoming Part of this checking in is that there's a sense of sliding into the body or dropping into the body with your attention, with your awareness. So there's a bit of a shift away from the head and then down, even down into your feet. and then in particular the trunk of your body. It might help you if you slide on the in-breath into the body. And you imagine the breath and your awareness uh, as a hug, like as if you're hugging yourself, as if you're hugging a friend. This is very precious to take a few moments of doing nothing, <coughs> just being with yourself as you are. And then in the out-breath, there's a quality of giving space or letting go, so with the out-breath, maybe you can release some of the tension, just a tiny little bit. So maybe your belly can soften. And your shoulders. And the face particular around the eyebrows, the forehead. If you notice some rigidity in your sitting, like kind of trying to sit upright in a too strict way, then you give in a little, soften. Of course, thoughts continue to arise, that's fine. And if you find yourself entangled in the thinking, then without hurry, gently, you return to the breath, 
to the sensation in your hands, to your belly. So thoughts become less important. They're happening a bit in the background, like the noise outside. And you bring the sense of aliveness, the breath, into the foreground. Turning. If you notice that you struggle with something, either you want to attain something or you want to get rid of something, with the out-breath, release the grasping. Turning, resting, allow yourself to slide into a space without, into a space without pressure. or self-improvement projects. Just resting. And then we call upon the presence of a mentor. And it could be also a few, so you don't need to choose. So. And uh, they, they come like angels. And this is like the morning sun after a cold night where you felt alone and you're just standing in the warmth of the sun or sitting in the warmth of the sun with your whole body. You feel the loving gaze of the Buddha the Dalai Lama, Jesus, Kamapa, Dalai Lama. Tara. And you feel their smile in your belly. If your mind wanders, you come back to your body, to the breath. You don't need to have a clear image, but you really feel, you, you, you smell, you hear the presence of compassion, of warmth, courage, wisdom, joy. You can't force anything, so just allow. And just sitting in compassionate presence, in the warmth or in the light, you become more and more like that. 
So it fills your body, every cell of your body, from the toes to the top of your head, <coughs> opens like a flower. And you make yourself open, vulnerable, naked. does it feel to be seen in your darkness and in your light? And seen with love. If there's something unsolved in your heart, just hold it into that light, into that warmth. The loving gaze, the smile, and the scent of kindness. Then your mentors, they dissolve into that warmth, into that light that enters you at the heart level, in your chest, and you become aware of the Buddha inside, the Dalai Lama inside, the Jesus inside, the Tara inside. If it helps you, you can imagine a Tara or another symbol, a diamond, for example, in the center of your being, the source of your care and the source of your love. from that source, from that innermost essence, the warmth, the light radiates into your whole body and fills your body completely. And then it radiates out to the pores of your body, into all directions. the source of light, the source of warmth in your life. So see if you can shift your sense of I, your sense of identity to the undestructible core, to your essence. in the center of your heart. Being a source of kindness. towards the end of our first meditation.
I invite you to touch the soft spot in your heart, your deepest longing, the longing for freedom, for joy, love, connectedness, safety. Wanting to be a peacemaker, stopping to add to the violence on this planet. Bring forth your potential. to heal yourself. And your family. Then I want to close with a verse from the Bodhisattva by Shantideva, which His Holiness the Dalai Lama often quotes. And just uh, listen and uh, just notice what what happens for you. As long as space remains. As long as there are suffering, feeling, living beings, I too shall remain in order to serve. As long as space remains, as long as they are suffering living beings, as long I too will remain in order to serve, to heal, to contribute. This is my pledge, my vow. Vipassana, insight, higher, higher seeing, or deeper seeing. That's what we are going to explore 
and why did I teach uh, shamatha before? The reason for that is that in the Tibetan tradition, in order to break free, you need to have a stable mind, stable attention. That's what you train in Jamata practice. And then with that stable mind, you look at your experience and you exp explore, you investigate into your experience. You start to look through your projections and you start to and you start to connect with reality in the sense of you start to see how things really exist, what this present moment is. And in order for doing that in a powerful way, in a transformative way, you need to have a stable mind. You need to be able to keep your intention, your attention, uh, directed to what you're investigating. And it's only, not every Buddhist school agrees with what I say, but m many must, I would say. In order to do that, you need to have a powerful consciousness, a powerful mind. And that's why in the Tibetan tradition, usually the training starts with uh, the cultivation of that stable attention. And then you add the wisdom part to it, the vipassana, the insight part to it. This, this, uh, this union of shamatha and vipassana, in, in Tibetan it's shin and lakton, is uh, in the graduate path models of Tibetan Buddhism is a very important milestone. Well, there's like certain milestones being described on the path of awakening and this is one where the shamatha and the vipassana come together in one mind. And most uh, Tibetan teachers would say this is necessary. You can have glimpses of the true nature of your being or the true nature of the universe or glimpses of oneness or whatever you want to call it. But to really make these glimpses transformative and a way of living and embodying it, uh, you need to have a stable mind. What? more powerful, more stable your mind is, more powerful your insights will be. They, they will not be just like kind of fleeting spiritual moments, which are precious and good. Uh, but uh, if, you, if we want to go deep, we need to have a stable mind, stable attention. In the different Buddhist schools, the word vipassana actually means different things and different uh, practices are connected with it. So I'm coming from uh, the Tibetan Buddhist training, so that's kind of the, you know, the frame uh, we, we will use um, in this course. And we will, I will say about this a bit more while we go along. According to the Buddhist teachings, according to the experience of the Buddha, we suffer because we are we are out of touch with reality. We live in a we live in our projections, and we believe that the, the things which appear in our mind and our consciousness exist in the way they appear to us. Now, this is like in a dream, where a dream image is not recognized as a dream Im image. It appears as something real there. And not only that, there's also a sense of I'm here and I'm looking at that. So similar, right now, 
this moment, this just right now, this moment does not exist in a way in the way it appears to you. It does not. And because you, we, we are, we believe in that. We believe that it exists in this way. We suffer. We struggle. We fight. We push people away. We grab the best thing for ourselves. And it's based on a mistake. It's it's based on um, it's it's based on a mistake which can be corrected. And that's what you do, that w and that's what you can do with higher seeing. You can you can experience directly the truth of this moment, the way this moment exists, and that will liberate you. Uh, liberate you not just you know having a good day, but liberate you forever. Like forever. Yeah. So while we go along in this course, we also know we ha you have to start to understand how this works. Yeah, so that you really go for it. I mean, once you have understood that it is possible that liberation is possible, that awakening is possible, uh, like, at least intellectually, you, s you start to understand intellectually how you create your suffering. And you start to see, wow, there's, there, there's a way out of that. Yeah, then, then your meditation will become more than just daydreaming and, you know, calming down the breath or something like that. So it's it's like uh, um, you need to have, well, you, you start to cultivate this passion for your liberation, for your awakening. And for that, the combination of shamatha and vipassana is, according to the Tibetan tradition, necessary. One could even say, and some, some teachers do that, that the unique contribution of the Buddha uh, back then was the vipassana. Yeah, because if you know the story, the life story of the Buddha, he spent like six years with the foremost meditation masters of his time, and he mastered all the practices. But they were all shamatha practices. So shamatha practice and then beyond. Yeah, so beyond shamatha practice are then the, what is called the dhyanas or the absorptions. So, and he has ma he ha 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 mastered all of that and he, and he found it's not liberating me. It, it, it feels really, really good. I mean, so good that, you know, it, once you get there, you would want to remain yeah, and kind of give up on everything else and give up on everyone else. Yeah, uh, but it's uh, it's temporary and uh, it's not um, it's not an expression of the potential which is inside of you. It's just a temporary rest, a wonderful rest. Yeah, so much so that we can get addicted to it. And so much that we even think this is enlightenment. Uh, but the Buddha found out, yeah, okay, so now what? I'm, I'm not free. So then, and then he, he discovered, then he added the wisdom part, the vipassana part. And then, and because he had that incredible strong mind, he could do it in one night. He just sat down with, you know, shamatha and beyond, and he looked into reality, and boom. I'm still hoping that suddenly there's this boom, but uh, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I started to set my cards on on a graduate development, you know. 
for them more, more and more freedom, yeah? more and more rest, and seeing more there's always room for improvement. So we are, we are looking at vipassana from a Tibetan frame, from a from the graduate path view, the lamrim of Tibetan Buddhism, the graduate path, step by step, yeah? bringing, kind of assembling the conditions so that awakening can happen, and getting the pieces together. And one important piece here is shamatha, stable attention. The other very important piece uh, from the Mayana point of view is bodhicitta, the awakened heart. So that is what I pointed to a, a bit at the end of our, of our meditation, the altruistic int intention. Uh, so being on the path of awakening uh, for everyone. And, and, and uh, you know, kind of forgetting about yourself. And, and, and awaken and being on this path for the benefit of everyone. And then even taking on that crazy vow, which somehow doesn't make sense, and it makes sense, this crazy vow to save everyone, one by one, and not giving up on, on anyone, forever. So... If if this speaks to you, yeah, it, it, it's maybe you know, maybe it does not speak to you at all. But if this speaks to you, that kind of uh, that kind of you know, vibration in your heart, that is called the Bodhisattva seed. Yeah. Just like when you hear when I said. In, in the, when I said, said this first, first, in order to serve. So if that speaks to you, yeah, so that's the that's the bodhisattva seed. That's that's called bodhicitta. It's, uh, the the longing to wake up and to grow up, in order to help. So that's a big difference to the Hinayana intention or the Theravada intention. Because they would say, that's hopeless. That's crazy. Uh, the best thing you can do with your life is to get out of here. That's the best gift you can, you can make. Yeah. And that's, a, uh, that's an honorable attention. And, uh, it's very powerful, but from the Mayana point of view, it's quite modest. And it's quite hard to do this journey just for yourself, because you're just one person. Mm. You know, so then it's easier to get drunk in the evening, because it's just one person. Uh, but if you do it for your family, I mean, if you have families, for example, then you know what power you have to do something, you know, to protect and fight for your family. So and then, so to canalize, to bring that that intention, you know, it's so powerful. The you know, the care for others, uh, your wish to protect. Uh, so if you can channel that into your meditation practice, then then you have a strong uh, intention behind. So maybe we come, we go back to that bodhicitta topic uh, while we go along. But of course, that's a whole, a whole set of teachings, which are, we have explored here a lot the last ten years. 
that that intention does not mean that you ex ex you exclude yourself in that service. Yeah, it's not like. Uh, it's not like a kind of stupid. Uh, like stupid um, uh, like sacrificing. No, it's obviously we start here. So that's obviously the first person to heal is, is yourself. But uh, so, in for some people, that's it for this life. And that's a that's a li that's a life well well used. Because at least you didn't add to the pain and the violence in the world, but you reduced it by reducing your violence and your pain. So this is very important to to look after yourself for the benefit of all, not 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 to feel good for yourself. No, that will pass. But for the benefit of all, you take care of yourself. You heal. You heal your psyche, your body. So, we will look at the vipassana practice in, in three different ways. The first is uh, the Theravada way, so Hinayana way. So vipassana, as it has been practiced in Thailand, in uh, in Sri Lanka, in Burma, and I have uh, practiced in these uh, three traditions. So I I I have received guidance from masters uh, in these traditions. So that will be one part. So this is. In a nutshell, is you with stable attention you hold the object of your meditation. We will talk about the different objects, and you discover the three characteristics. And the three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So that's it. That's vipassana practice. And if you don't look for anicca, dukkha, and anatta, you're not doing vipassana practice. And you do something else. Maybe it's something useful, but it's not vipassana practice. So we need to flesh out these three words, but I think it's good if you, you know if you get a bit used to these three words. So then because each translation is a bit um, unsatisfactory. Yeah. But like in a nutshell, which I need to flesh out, uh, so seeing the object of your meditation in the light of the three characteristics means it's changing, anicca, it's vibration, there's nothing solid, nothing concrete there. It's changing moment by moment. It's like, <laughs> yeah, everything. That's one of the projections, which you know, we solidify things into into something which which is not there. Even now, like the things here, they they seem to, they seem to be very real and solid and out there and you know made from matter and waiting to be discovered by you and they were here in this room uh, and it's not like that so if you kind of uh, you know remember some of the teachings in you know in physics it's outdated but you know one can start there like you know if you just you know still assume that there's atoms even then you have already lost solidity. It's like 99% space and the little thing which is there, you can't really pinpoint. Uh, so, so that, and here in Vipassana, you, you 
you go so deep into your experience, you actually see that directly. So it's one thing to kind of think, yeah, yeah, I know this is this is actually kind of more a kind of energy field, changing, vibrating all the time. You're not not even with fixed borders. But another thing is to actually perceive it like that, and that's what you do in in vipassana. So here, the impermanence it is also called. But here, the impermanence refers to the momentary vibrational nature of of your experience. So, and of course, then out of that comes you know death and and the more coarse change in our life. But here in Vipassana, we look into the moment. So it's changing. The second, dukkha, it is un- unsatisfactory. That's one translation of dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. Um, it's also called suffering. Yeah? Doesn't sound so sexy, but... but uh, it is. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, dukkha is is um, is um, is quite deep. Yeah. So, with uh, anicca, intellectually, we can get an idea of it quite quickly. Uh, because it makes so much sense. You know, but dukkha is a bit more complex and more challenging because... Uh, so, in a, like in a nutshell, one could say you, you notice the changing, it's changing, and the second is it does not satisfy you. It's, it's, it does not satisfy you. Whatever it is, yeah. uh, and that is uh, this is a hard thing to admit, because uh, a part of us still feels that there's safety in nice experiences, that there is a safe place somewhere there. I just need to buy the right flat and find the right wife and have the right career. And then I have my safe place. And then to to admit that also the safe place sucks and is impermanent, that takes some guts. To, To see that we have been running around in what is called samsara and looking for the safe place and we have looked everywhere on the Mount Everest and being king, and I mean, now if we play with past lives, yeah. But even if we just look uh, in this life, you know, I mean, if you are like around 40, you, you should have figured out that going to parties is not going to work out in terms of lasting happiness. Yeah. And then what? So, that, I mean, this is not where we stop, because, of course, then we start to ask, yeah, but is there something which is really nourishing me? Something which really is quenching the thirst I have? For, like, really, genuinely. Uh, so, is there something? And then the Buddha says, or mystic says, yes, there is. There is something, there is the water which quenches your thirst. Uh, But it is not cafe latte. (laughs) And that's a hard thing to to realize. It's because that's also you become like a, a, a kind of outsider in our society because we're supposed to believe that the the water which can quench our thirst is in the cafe latte, because then we are buying it. So nobody will tell us, you know, uh, the the truth, because then we stop to, you know, be consumers. And 
So, it's difficult. There is a certain misery in your experience all the time. That's why, you know, there's this Buddhist not, not so popular teaching which says happiness is in the nature of suffering. What we call happiness is actually in, in, the, in the Buddhist teachings is one of the three sufferings. There is a kind of tension and restlessness, a dissatisfaction all the time. There's, there's some discomfort all the time. And we are busy the whole day to avoid it and to be there. And then in Vipassana practice, you are encouraged to look at it, to see it, to make it the meditation object. So in Vipassana practice, you go towards something nobody else wants to go. Everyone is running away from that, or pretending it's not there. So for that, of course, you need to understand, why the heck would I do that? Now I spent 35 years to try to get rid of difficult feelings, and now you're saying me I should go towards it? <laughs> So you really need to understand, you need to be encouraged and reminded to do that, because it's counter-instinctual. Your instincts say, run. So the, the deepest tension in each moment, which is part of, part of Dukkha, is the tension which comes from the dualistic split of the subject and the object. So there is a, like this, this tension. I and the object. And this leads to either grasping, if you like it, which is also suffering. That's suffering. Or trying to get rid of. And that's obvious suffering. I mean, that's, uh, that's like common. Yeah? But, but, but the other, that, gra that in the grasping, that that is that there is that misery in it, which is not so obvious. Uh, that's, um, so that's the deepest level of, of dukkha, you know, this constant tension within us, which uh, comes through the dualistic split between subject and ob object, and the tension through, through that. <coughs> And it's actually, you can experience it. You know, there, is, there is this kind of contraction in our body, mind, heart. It's like this contraction around a central position, which makes us, you know, what do the other things? <laughs> yeah, it's like this, I mean, maybe you are more relaxed than me, but, you know, so, uh, uh, but there is this kind of, you know, kind of a sense we're living in a predatory universe and, and you are kind of being a bit suspicious all the time. <laughs> so, so, it's, so this misery, uh, this misery which is pervading every moment uh, in, an, an, in an unawakened person, um, this is what we start to see and we become curious about it. We make it. So in Vipassana, you know, this is wonderful because you know that which you would call hindrances or that what you don't want to experience in meditation becomes the meditation object. So your practice is not trying to run away into a transcendental space or something, but Vipassana practice is actually going towards uh, the human experience and being with it, and exploring it. Somehow, you know, understanding dukkha can be a big relief. Finally, someone says the truth. 
and I thought it's my, it was my fault. I thought it was my fault that my life is not turning out and that I still have all these hor horrible human feelings. It isn't. It's not your fault. It, it just sucks. <laughs> and it sucks for everyone. Some people are better to pretend that everything is okay. That's all. They have a better marketing strategy for themselves. But it sucks for everyone. Life is, I mean, life is so difficult. It's just one damn problem after another, and it never stops. And it's going to continue. I can see that with my clear boy and power. <laughs> if I look into your future, <laughs> I can see it's going to be difficult. There will be difficult feelings. And there will be sickness and death and loss and dissatisfaction. And that's just, oh, we are in the same boat. And so what to do, what to do now? Helping each other? Dukkha, of course, is also uh, incredible, important in terms of uh, having empathy and compassion. <coughs> so that's another benefit of noticing that, and then understanding that all of that is, all of this is not necessary. That it is a mistake. It's not necessary. So that is then called great compassion, because not only you see people suffering, you, you, you realize this is not necessary. They are suffering because of a mistake they make. So that's Theravada, I think. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's time. So it yeah, for me, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's harder to listen. It's harder to listen to this. <laughs> it's harder to listen to this than sitting here and talking. Yeah? So, uh, but uh, let's have 10 minutes break. There will be no time for questions today. <laughs>